Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. My name is Jenna Inglot, and I will be your host for today's episode. And I'm really excited to have with me today, Dr. David Atkinson, who is a associate professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at Ryerson University. And I'm not sure where our conversation is going to go, but I'm personally eager to hear a bit more about David's background um, and his work in the Arctic. So welcome, David. Thanks for being here today. Thank you very much, Jenna. I appreciate uh, the invitation to be here and uh, to, to tell a bit about uh, my work and my uh, uh, work in the Arctic and how that uh, I look at it through a sustainability lens. Awesome. Well, to start us off, um, maybe just tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, where you come from. Uh, feel free to be as broad or, or as, uh, as specific as you like. Okay. Uh, well, I'll start with uh, with with who I am and what I do right now, uh, and that'll give, lead into a bit of uh, where I've come from and a bit of the background, uh, which then will uh, kind of get, cut, jump back to to what I work on now in the Arctic. Uh, so uh, I'm a I'm a professor at Ryerson University in Toronto. Uh, I'm in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies. Uh, I'm currently the chair of the department. Uh, and uh, Ryerson, we've got a, a, an excellent program uh, of uh, a geographic analysis program where we look at uh, solving real world problems by looking at uh, spatial data and data analytics. Uh, but we also have a, have a really great undergrad program in environment and urban sustainability uh, that came online a couple of years ago as well, uh, where we've got undergraduate students who are looking at uh, environmental issues. Uh, through the lens of sustainability within an urban setting as well, being uh, right in the heart of downtown Toronto. Uh, so it's very uh, urban focused uh, and it's an excellent, excellent program. Uh, but what I like to tell my students uh, whenever they come into my class is that as a university professor, uh, I really have uh, three jobs. Uh, one of them is uh, teaching and teaching courses. Uh, and so I teach a first year environmental science course, and I also teach a, uh, an Arctic geography course. Uh, the second part of my job is my research. Uh, and that's where we focus on uh, generating new knowledge, asking uh, scientific questions, exploring uh, different issues. Uh, and then the third part of the job is all administrative, having meetings about the next meeting and what we're going to talk about in, in the final meeting. Uh, and so. Uh, I think the, uh, the the best area to focus on today is probably with my with my research uh, and and how it's focused on uh, really a, what I feel is a m more sustainable approach to uh, Arctic science, uh, but also uh, a more uh, helping with Inuit communities uh, in the Canadian Arctic uh, approach their own issues of of resource sustainability, particularly around uh, fresh water. Okay. So what what I so where where I've come from a little bit about where my background is is uh, I'm a, a physical geographer an environmental uh, geographer is my background. Uh, I started working in the north oh, back in in 1999. So now we're over 20 years uh, working in Yellowknife when I was an undergrad as a as a co-op student, and I was exposed to uh, looking at aggregate resources and, and gravel resources in the north uh, that were coming from uh, glacial deposits known as eskers. Uh, and on the, the tundra landscape, uh, eskers have this amazing uh, connection to vegetation and wildlife uh, because they're a, a raised, uh, drier place that, that, that kind of it's a river of gravel. Uh, it draws caribou and wolves and then people to them as well. Uh, and so we were looking at that connection between the environment, uh, but also as a source for, for, for mining roads and that as well. 
so that was kind of my first exposure. Uh, I ended up doing a, a, my, my doctorate degree at Queen's University. Uh, and that's where I got exposed to uh, really what I they describe as the, the traditional uh, Arctic science kind of background, where uh, uh, as a scientist from the south, we went north. Uh, we were on uh, a remote uh, island. I was uh, spent several weeks every summer for several years on Melville Island uh, at, uh, at a research site known as Cape Bounty. Uh, essentially, the the five to, to six uh, researchers at our camp were the only people on this entire island, uh, except for the caribou and, and the wolves. Uh, and we'd spend our summer doing research, looking at permafrost melt and vegetation and, and a number of different things. Uh, and then at the end of the summer, uh, we would pack up our stuff and come back south. And we'd analyze our data, write our papers, uh, and go from there. And so that was the, what my, my PhD was about. Um, but as I progressed, became a professor and, and started my own research program, I didn't feel that, uh, number one, research in the North is incredibly expensive. And as a mm-hmm. new researcher yep. trying to find funding uh, can be a challenge. Uh, and, and being able to afford to send myself and a graduate student or two all the way to the high Arctic, out on a helicopter or a twin otter to a small remote island uh, for a few weeks of the year is incredibly expensive uh, and really not uh, contributing as much to the North as I felt it, it could. Uh, and so I, sh- I looked for other opportunities to shift my research uh, from uh, working in remote locations to, to bringing it back to working with communities uh, and, and trying to be able to do uh, the similar research uh, in a community, uh, with community members, uh, and then involving them directly in the research uh, so that it was more uh, a much more sustainable approach financially, but also in terms of what we would build in the North and helping to build uh, research capacity uh, for communities in the North. So it's not just the Southern researcher coming North that we're trying to build uh, research connections and research uh, uh, abilities in, in these individual communities. That's amazing. And I think, oh, so much of what you said resonates with me. I, oh, we were chatting about this before, Dave, but, um, you know, I've spent some time in, in Nunavut and, and the Yukon as well. And, and, you know, there, there's sort of this very helicopter approach, right? The research comes in and goes and comes in and goes. And I think, you know, building the capacity within communities. Literally in helicopters. <laughs> literally in helicopters, yes. And building the capacity <laughs> in, in communities, um, you know, not just to, to from the sustainability and financial reasons for external researchers, but also so those communities and individuals can can really have the tools and knowledge and resources that they need to be a part of decision-making um, or be a part of, you know, building community resiliency from a research basis, but being able to do that alongside researchers and, and educational institutions. So that's really amazing. Um, very exciting work that you do. Um, I'm going to ask you a few questions more about that, but you started your story uh, really at your undergraduate uh, level, which is very cool. Um, but I'm curious, if you can, can, you know, where did your interest in this field come from? Like, you know, share a bit about, you know, where you came from and, um, you know, what was there something in your childhood or your, your high school life or what kind of led you into, into the field? I'm curious. Um, I grew up, uh, just outside of the city of Toronto, uh, in a, in what is Mississauga, but actually, Mississauga, city of Mississauga is made up of many small little towns. Uh, and so I grew up in what was known as Malton. Uh, it was a small, small community uh, right by the Toronto airport. Uh, and really, it, it, I always enjoyed the outdoors. Uh, I enjoyed the environment. We had a small, uh, at the time, what I would have called a, the creek uh, that ran behind our apartment building. Uh, and I'd go out as a kid and, and play looking for crayfish and frogs in the creek. 
Uh, now that I'm a little more wise, I realize it's a essentially an open storm sewer. But you know, as a kid, it was still the creek, uh, and uh, <laughs> and so you know, just playing out there uh, in 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 the environment and seeing things going on really sparked my interest. Uh, I I realized that I liked uh, working uh, and learning more about the environment. I always had questions, you know, uh, why is that hill there? You know, why why do these types of trees grow here, but those types of trees uh, grow over there? So I, I was always a curious uh, kid interested in science uh, and realized that uh, when it came to science, I wasn't necessarily interested in the the micro aspect, the, you know, how, how do toxins move into cells? I like the bigger macro picture, the looking at the forest. Why is this forest here? What does this forest mean to uh, the river, to the animals, th those types of things, uh, which really then drew me towards uh, geography, uh, which is the, really the study of um, place and space and, and the relationship uh, between objects. Uh, and it really drew me towards uh, the the environmental geography and the physical geography, uh, and so that's why I I initially decided to to look into that and and head that way. Uh, I also enjoyed computers as a kid, so it kind of drew me towards uh, remote sensing and, and satellite image analysis and and computer mapping and GIS. Uh, it was a bit of the what do I you know, I'm a, I don't want to be able to play outside all the time. I'm probably going to have to be in an office, so I should probably have some computer skills too, uh, was, was kind of the, the, the idea. But then I realized what my passion really was, was me learning about the environment and then sharing that with people. Uh, and so that's where I really got the, the passion for, for teaching uh, and learning uh, and, and wanting to, to be able to share what I've learned and what I know uh, with others. So once I figured out why that hill was there, uh, I wanted to tell you why that hill was there and how that glacier had come down 10,000 years ago and moved the sediment. That, that's the stories that I wanted to tell. Uh, and so being a professor now allows me uh, to do that. Um, uh, used to joke that on we, we'd go for a drive in the car. Uh, and at first, when I was a kid, I'd ask questions about where things were. Uh, then as I got older, the drives in the car would become me telling stories uh, about why things they are, are there. Are there. Uh, but then once I realized that the people in the car with me uh, got so bored, I had to find a bigger audience. Uh, so yeah. I decided to go to teach at university where I'd get 200 uh, new students every year and take them on a bus and tell them about where everything was. So uh, that, that's kind of what led me to being uh, a professor. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting to think back on, you know, those, those little moments, like you say, leaving your apartment and playing in the Creek behind your house and how that, you know, something that seemingly at the time was just, just playing, but it built that, that curiosity in you that now guides your, your whole career, your whole life and your whole practice. So um, yeah, it's just very, it's very neat to yeah. hear about different people's stories and how you sort of end up in that space. But I find with most people and, and all, everybody we've featured so far on the podcast, um, you know, really rooted in an experience as a child. Um, and, and so I think, you know, that speaks, speaks well to, even your work as a professor and, and working with young people is, you know, the, that those instrumental moments when you're, when your brain is fresh and taking in new knowledge, I think is what uh, builds an inspired group of leaders for the future. So um, very, very interesting. Um, so Dave, we, we, what the other question that I, I wanted to kind of ask you um, you know, the term sustainability, it's, uh, for those of us who work in the space and, and those who don't, I think it's a, it's an over, overused term. It's, it's not often, um, all that well-defined. And so we sort of have thought to ask this question as a way to sort of have a running definition, a building definition of what the term sustainability means from the perspective of different guests that we have on the podcast. So in your work and, and your research and um, your community work, you know, what, what does sustainability 
mean to you and how, how do you sort of define that term? And you're welcome to use, you know, sustainability and the concept of a sustainability lens interchangeably, whatever works best for you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, well, for me, uh, sustainability, uh, there's quite a bit of sustainability that resonates, uh, through my teaching and my research and, 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 and different components that I, that I work with. Um, but, uh, you know, the initially when we were, when I was younger, they would talk about the environment and concerns about the environment and, and really the, the issues that were about the environment then always impacted uh, people or, or the economy and, and the politics. Uh, and so um, when the term sustainability started being used more regularly, uh, and really my, my work kind of started to focus on those issues, uh, I, I looked at uh, the multiple different de- definitions or approaches to sustainability. Uh, you know, there's, there's looking at it in terms of uh, everything into a, a separate pillar that kind of prop sustainability up where you've got the environment, you've got the economy, you've got society, and they're all relatively equal. Uh, but that didn't really work well for me in terms of, of a definition. I like to approach sustainability uh, and particularly environmental sustainability uh, as that we live on the planet Earth uh, where we have uh, a finite uh, amount of resources. Uh, and without uh, the environment, and without clean water, without clean air, uh, there is no economy, there is no social structure, uh, there is no political structure. Uh, and so uh, if we cannot maintain uh, a healthy, clean environment, then we can't don't have a solid foundation for the rest of society uh, to be built on. Um, and so uh, for me, uh, trying to uh, provide, uh, from a teaching standpoint, teach those concepts to students. Uh, but from my, uh, research and, and, and broader contributions, uh, trying to shift, uh, whatever part of, of society I can, uh, towards that kind of viewpoint that, uh, we need to take a, a, a sustainable approach. Uh, and so particularly with my, with my work in the North, uh, Yes, there, there is uh, personally on, on a research standpoint, there is uh, uh, cost issues and sustainability issues in terms of uh, being able to fund northern science. Uh, but the real issues, uh, particularly in the north, uh, is that uh, the, the communities, particularly in uh, Nunavut, uh, the, the, the Inuit communities, are, are incredibly young uh, structures. Uh, these communities were really built uh, through the the 1950s and 60s uh, through a colonial approach uh, where uh, water was decided you're going to get the water from this point. We're going to put the garbage over here. Uh, we're going to structure this community uh, in a certain way. And all of those decisions were made by people uh, from the south with very little consultation, if any. Uh, to to the Inuit, uh, and then Inuit were were in from for many different reasons uh, moved into these communities, uh, whether by choice or or by uh, external pressures. Uh, and now we're getting to a point where we we first off we've realized that that colonial approach was incredibly wrong to begin with, uh, and that these communities that were were built uh, aren't are number one from a financial standpoint incredibly expensive to to maintain uh power alone and and electricity is all generated by diesel fuel that needs to be shipped up from the south uh mm-hmm. that everything needs to be shipped up from the south uh and that uh decisions that were made about where water was coming from where waste was going uh didn't take into account any level of growth and so now we've got uh, the Nunavut, uh, being created in 1999, uh, uh, the land for the people, uh, Inuit are, have been, are taking a much larger role, uh, in, in self-governance. That's the point of Nunavut. Uh, 
but they still are are, are essentially forced to rely on uh, a colonial approach. Uh, mm-hmm. Questions of science, questions of the environment uh, are, well, to answer that, we've, we've got to bring in somebody from the South to, to answer that question from us. And so from an approach of science, that's not sustainable either. Uh, mm-hmm. Communities want to be able to uh, answer their own questions understand how they are going to grow and change. Uh, and they don't want to be reliant on uh, the standard colonial approach from the South. Uh, and so my, my approach to, to science uh, in the North has been, how do we build, start to build that type of research capacity uh, in, in these communities? Uh, and, and our approach uh, has been to uh, Number one, engage uh, the youth uh, as as the drivers of of this, uh, but connecting with the broader community and particularly the elders to help mm-hmm. guide the types of research questions uh, that the community is really interested in. Uh, so my my background uh, and connection is looking at Arctic landscapes. Uh, my my PhD was based on looking at vegetation communities in the Arctic, uh, whether they're, it's dry Arctic tundra or, or wet, wet little small sedge wetlands, uh, and how those impact and connect to local streams and water. Uh, and so my work has been to look at, take what my strengths are in terms of the ecosystem, to, to take it to the, the community and say, look, what are your concerns about water? Do you have concerns about water? Where do you get your water? Why do you get your water there? Uh, and and are you concerned about the future with it? And that's really the foundation uh, of of my my question. Uh, and once I open that up, it it floods in their information, uh, their concerns, their questions. And so that's where I start going. Okay, how can we find a way that this community can start to answer those questions themselves? And not be reliant on uh, the South, reliant on uh, Southern consultants, uh, and also be able to build um, resiliency, capacity, but also local trust as well. Mm-hmm. They trust the elders, they trust community members, uh, and if the answers are coming from the community, then they're going to trust those answers as well. They've been told. Uh, they've been told stories and things from people from the South for, for years. Oh, this mm-hmm. will be good. If you go here, it'll be better. And it's not the truth. Yes. So they yeah. don't, when somebody from a consultant from the South comes North and says, you're going to want to do this. They look mm-hmm. at it and go, yeah, here we go again, being told what to do and how to do it. But yeah. when you have a community member who, who has trust with the community says, we went out and we measured this and we looked at this and we think this is the best idea for the community, there's going to be more uh, trust and more acceptance within that. And so that creates a a better, more sustainable community uh, overall. And not just from the standpoint of of answering a scientific question, we've helped to build capacity in that community. Maybe it starts off as, as research capacity, on you know how to take a sample, how to analyze the water, uh, but it translates also into how to talk to uh, the town council about water mm-hmm. issues and water concerns or any environmental concerns. Uh, and so we see that what starts off as uh, you know working on a on a science based project, uh, our participants and the people we work with evolve into. Uh, real flourishing community members that really are engaged within their community and within the broader North. And, yeah. and so uh, really at the end of the day, uh, the science and the science questions are, are secondary uh, to, to what we end up achieving. Right. Yeah, that's incredible, Dave. Wow. So when you, I have so many questions about a lot of what you just said, but so can you paint a bit of a picture of um, 
so you're, you know, you're, you personally and your program, you're working in the community. What does youth engagement look like? Or what does that, um, you know, training, knowledge transfer, capacity building, what does that look like in a on the ground, hands-on uh, way? What does that look yeah. like? Yeah. Uh, well, well, first I want to describe how we approach this kind of research and science in the South, and then contrast that with with the reality of the North. Uh, you know, whenever when when I would take a a student from the South, uh, chances are they're they're at at a minimum doing their undergraduate university degree, if not a a master's degree, meaning they've already gone through completed their high school diploma, done at least three to four years of an undergraduate degree into the master's degree. Uh, and, and then I say, oh, well, now you, you have passed all your tests. You can come with me to the North. And in the South, that's the expectation, uh, you, high school, university, and things like that. The, the challenges in, in, in the North and in Nunavut, that's not the path that, that, is, that is available for people. Uh, some of the biggest challenges is simply uh, youth in the North completing high school. Uh, and then because if even to complete high school in some communities, they have to leave their community and, and there's, there's mm -hmm. problems and issues with that, uh, historical challenges around leaving your community, uh, and then, uh, coming back and, and, and those types of things. Uh, so the truth is though, is that, uh, much of the work, uh, that we do really in the North when it comes to, uh, collecting data, sampling, uh, it is not, you really, you know, we're, our science when it comes to the field work is, is collecting a water sample, measuring things from a water sample. You really, yes, the university degree gives you the, the scientific foundations for everything you're doing, but it's not required to be able to understand that task. Uh, and so, what we do is is we try to uh, we engage with the local hunters and trappers organizations quite often uh, because they are really uh, essentially the the conservation groups of mm. the north uh, yeah. and and they have a connection with with young people who are engaged on the land uh, interested in 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 hunting in in fishing and in, in 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 more uh, that that direct connection uh, and so they'll bring uh, youth to us and say, okay. these guys here and the, these people are, are, are interested. Uh, we also go into the high schools and talk about uh, what we do as well. And so our approach, uh, the, the term, the Inuit actually have a, of, of a term for how they learn. Uh, and, and their, their learning model is referred to as a, an Iniguinic uh, learning model. And essentially what that is, it's a, it's a form of mentorship. And an iniguinic means the becoming of a capable human. And to be a capable human, it takes a lot of different components to be able to live and survive. And you don't get all of those from one, one learning opportunity or one person. You have multiple mentors that help guide you on this journey to being uh, a, a complete person. And so we take a mentorship approach. We don't hire youth and say, hey, uh, these guys, you guys are going to be our research assistants. We, we work directly with the hunters and trappers organizations. We work with the youth that they've brought to us uh, as a mentorship and training uh, approach. They help us develop the questions. They know the land. They know their mm -hmm. community. They know where people are, what they're doing and where they're doing it. I don't, I don't know that. That's their knowledge. Uh, and I respect that knowledge. What I know is how to collect a water sample and how to treat it and process it to check if it's safe to drink. And yeah. so we, we balance those skill sets together. Uh, they help me learn more about the North. I help them learn about the, the science and how we can do it uh, in their community. Uh, and much of the science that we do can be done directly in the community. Uh, and so we try to build, uh, we build a local uh, research lab. Uh, and, and those labs uh, have looked like uh, 
everything from working in uh, somebody's kitchen to to working in one of the the local colleges and that. Uh, so we need very minimal things. We need some space. We need some water, and we can set up a, a, a science lab to do a number of things. We bring up uh, equipment for that lab, uh, and the equipment is not just ours to uh, bring up and then take back. We build these labs so that they are a component of the community. They're, they're for the HTO and they're for these youth to be able to continue uh, working in later on. That's uh, so incredible. We'll then, we'll start to talk to them about, you know, how do your community says you're worried about, uh, you know, the road and pollution from the road into the water. Or you're worried about, is the water safe to drink? Uh, and so we talk to them and, and go from, okay, well, that's the base question. How do we turn that into a scientific question with a uh, hypothesis, with a experimental design, so that uh, we can communicate those results in a good way out to the community, but also to outside the community? Uh, and we take a very holistic approach uh, to working with with our youth uh, in that, they, like I said, they're not just our research assistants. We are mentors uh, to them. Uh, we we take not just, uh, we, we look at the scientific question, we look at the sampling, we do as much analysis in the community as we can, uh, and then we also work with them in terms of how to communicate and analyze that data. Uh, so we've had workshops uh, in the South uh, where the youth will come from different communities, will come together, uh, and we'll teach them how to run simple statistics to look at their their data that they've collected, and then present that at scientific conferences. So we'll also attend uh, one of the major Canadian uh, Arctic conferences, ArcticNet, and mm -hmm. these students or these 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 youth, they do the presentations mm -hmm. uh, to, to these scientists because there's no point in me standing up. And, and telling about some other community's water, it's important for these youth to stand up and tell these scientists about their water. Uh, mm -hmm. And to, to build that trust, uh, also there's, there's a lot of skepticism within the scientific community when you say, oh, it was citizen science. Uh, you know, someone who didn't have a master's degree filled that bottle of water, I don't trust it. Well, you know what? Yeah. If we teach them the proper methodology, we follow the proper steps and procedures, their data is just as good as whether it was done by somebody with a master's degree. Uh, and so if we can build that confidence in the data, uh, the, south, the scientists from the South start to uh, have more fit, have faith in it, uh, and the community as well knows that it was done uh, by their youth and, and by the, for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what you were saying, about um you know in the south folks have a an undergraduate degree as a foundation or maybe even a master's degree as a foundation already when they're pursuing some of this work um but people in communities have what i would call an undergraduate degree and maybe even a master's degree on their community and their land and the species that live there and the environment and the weather and the climate and they're just that there's value in that too, right? And I think our, our Western ideology of what is and isn't science, you know, currently doesn't do a very good job of, of, of appreciating that or, or understanding that. But, you know, when I think about citizen science, I think about, um, you know, even where I live rurally and, and how much in more in tune I am with my environment because I live here and I see the same things every day so I very much notice when they're different. So yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing from a capacity building perspective, what you're doing. And I think, you know, even, even what you were saying about taking those youth to an Arctic net conference um, and one of the challenges for those youth in going to a post-secondary institution is confidence, right? Is, is this hugely problematic, historical, violent, past that has led people to not want to leave their community um, for a whole variety of reasons. But e even that, you know, they were a part of your program and then they presented at a conference, um, you know, for e even a, whether it's a high school student or someone in their 20s, that's a hugely, hugely valuable experience. That's, yeah, incredible. 
and and I like to say that I have I've worked with with some youth in the north and and young young people who uh, you know have worked on multi year research programs that have done uh, more data collection and analysis and presentations than than some PhD students uh, that I've seen, but because they aren't registered in a uh, in a program because they don't have those structured uh, prerequisites of a high school degree and an undergrad degree, they, at the end of the day, they don't have a piece of paper that says they've done all this, yet I know that they have done this and more. Uh, and so that's, that's one of the challenges between, uh, you know, the, this, uh, the, the, the Southern view of education and the steps that you must follow uh, to be to be recognized, and so uh, it's something we talk about quite a bit. Uh, and and the other component that you said as well is that the confidence uh, that that these these youth get by uh, undertaking these projects, uh, it, presenting them to the community, but then also presenting it uh, in the, it to other people as well. Uh, every every single youth that has ever done one of these presentations was incredibly nervous to begin with. Would do a went and did a fantastic presentation into a room of scientists, and afterwards said that that alone was was some of the most confidence building uh, thing that they had ever done because now they knew they could do it, and that mm. that that they could if they could do that, they could could move on to do do so much more. Um, yeah. you know, we had one one conference. Uh, at, at Arctic Den, and we had a youth who presented his community's research in Inuktitut, uh, so in his his native language. Uh, and and the community's an Arctic; it, it's an Arctic conference. And, and really, and there are a lot of Inuit that come to the conference that have worked on other research projects. But he was the only Inuit to present in in the area that we were doing. And the only one to do it in a nook to took. And wow. the other Inuit in the co- in afterwards came up to him and were just so proud of him to be able to do that. And it meant more uh, to be able for him to do that than, than and it had more resonance than, than me standing up and talking about water quality and pond inlet. So for sure, it was yeah. it's quite amazing to see. That is amazing. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. And I can just I can feel you know, I wasn't there, but I can feel how that would have felt, you know, listening to someone who had been a part of a research program, deliver those results in their own language. That's so powerful. Um, And it's starting to kind of break down, you know, that 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 barrier or that um, sort of helicopter concept that we talked about early on of people coming in, typically taking just taking from the community right and yes there's an element of having some a paper at the end or results that are presented back to the community but that's very different than than what what you're doing and that that capacity building piece so um that's incredible so dave the other thing that came up when you were speaking there was um you know to me and this is incredible and um makes me really happy and really, I guess, inspired that there's academics and researchers and institutions that are moving in this direction, because I think um, it's, tr- to me, truly the, the way that, that we all need to be moving. But um, what have the barriers been like <laughs> for that? <laughs> and like, you know, the first yeah. thing that comes to mind is these structures of funding that you know, it's, it's the funding is for for you, David, and your students of academic stature going and doing these things. So what have those barriers been like? And how have you navigated that? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, in the South, we measure the productivity by how many papers have I put out? Uh, what were what journals did I publish those papers in? How many graduate students have I graduated, uh, and and what are they doing now? Uh, and 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 those are the metrics that we we measure by. Uh, but to be honest with you, the the metrics that that I really think mean more is 
you know, how many youth did we work with? You know, how many youth did we bring down and be able to present at a conference? And, and what has that meant to them in the community? But that doesn't go on my, my, my CV. That doesn't, it, it's very difficult to communicate that in a, in a funding application. And the, the biggest challenge for us has been uh, funding and really sustainable funding. Uh, we get, we, we often can get a, a grant that says, you know what, that's a great idea. Let's give that a try. Uh, and we do something for a couple of years. Uh, but then that money dries up and they're like, well, we, we were only kind of just to, to get that going. There isn't a lot of long-term funding. And, yeah. and the long-term scientific funding uh, is, it, it, you know, as much as science is about innovation, the least innovative thing in the world is scientific funding applications and processes. <laughs> they are incredibly prescribed. There is a, uh, you have to fill out the form and write the proposal. Uh, and, and there is a definitely a, a skill set to writing proposals. There, there's a formula for it. Uh, and there isn't a place in there to say, this is what my community involvement is. And, and, and they're still looking at going, oh, how many papers have you pumped out in the last few years? Right. Well, yeah. if I had taken a grad student, put them in the North, we would have got, uh, I, I, I can get excellent data and I can get a lot of data. Uh, and we could take that data back we can analyze it and we can pump out a paper. I can't do that necessarily with a community because I want to build that capacity. It takes time to uh, build the trust, build those relationships and collect uh, the data that is going to get published, uh, that's going to be uh, accepted uh, because of, of, of what those journals are looking for. Uh, and so we can't do that right away in, in one summer or one year. So it takes a longer time uh, to, to build that, that, that data and start to have something that we can uh, publish for the South. The communities are ecstatic with what, what we do because we can answer right away. That water is, is incredibly clean and it's safe for you to drink. I can tell you that in an afternoon. Mm -hmm. And the community loves that. And the fact that somebody from their community in their community can answer that question. But for the publishing side of things, it takes more. Uh, and so the challenge has been is that uh, we're not pumping out papers. We, we pump out some reports for funding agencies and that. Uh, but we're not a big publisher. Uh, I'm not pumping out uh, grad students, uh, you know, left, right and center because uh, I want to take the right type of student to the north to i'm i'm mentoring them as well and i'm mentoring yeah. them in my approach what i think is a more sustainable approach uh to to arctic science so i'm not going to have uh 10 graduate students on, on at a time i have one or two who i focus on uh and and really put the time and effort into um and so the biggest barriers have been finding that funding uh, and like you said, the funding is for me. The funding mm -hmm. is for my grad student. How do I write in? Well, I want to pay uh, three youth in a community uh, a livable wage yeah. for, uh, for the year uh, to go and collect data uh, for their community. There isn't a line item for, for community member youth salary. Yeah. Uh, and so... And, and and as much as I tell the stories, I talk about this, and everybody goes, "My gosh, that's 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 the way we should be going. This is what we should be doing. That's a great idea." Well, it's still not in the form, and they haven't updated their form. And oh, we just this year we talked about uh, you know equity and diversity in your research, you know, and inclusion. It it, it the the it's not innovative. There is, it is formulaic and it is, a, it is a huge challenge to try to find the funding to be able to uh, develop these programs the way they should be developed. Yeah. And 
thank you for that answer. I I assumed that <laughs> that that was uh, that was exactly what you were going to say because um, yeah, even in in my limited experience as a as a grad student was you know I didn't publish a paper and I focused on partnering with external organizations that were working in the community to publish a you know, publicly available toolkit that could be used by that community and other communities wanting to do the same thing. But again, I know that was a challenge for, you know, my professor and my program and those types of things, because I didn't, exactly as you said, on the the check boxes of things that benefit, that didn't benefit, that's not going to help in getting future funding, which is just so, um, so incredibly frustrating, because that's, uh, not the direction we could should be moving for sure. So I'm yeah. I'm grateful that there's people like you out there that are are doing this work and being innovative, but I can only imagine the challenge in terms of accessing funding to do to do this good work. So yeah, it's uh Yeah, it it, it really is the the funding has been it is what I would say is been the, the biggest challenge. Uh, because we find great people in the north to work with. Uh, but you want to be able to make a commitment. Number one, uh, I make commitments to communities. Uh, I'm not a, a parachute scientist, so I'm, I, I don't want to jump from one community to the next and, and, and then never go back. I want to make commitments to communities. I want to make commitments to the people I work with in communities. And it's incredibly hard when you know you've only got funding for uh, a year and a half, maybe two years. Uh, and you want to be able to say, look, uh, you work with me, we work, we'll work together for the next several years, and this is where we can take this. And, mm-hmm. and you can't make those kind of promises. And so, uh, the people have to survive. And so it's, it's, we, we lose, um, good youth often to other employment because it's, they, they can say it, you know, I, got a job here and they're going to pay me and you don't know when your next funding cycle is coming through. Yeah, so. exactly. It's not sustainable for them to, to make a living from. Right. No. So yeah, yeah. No. It's, it's challenging. My hope is, is that this will change. Um, but it, it, it's, I guess it's discouraging to hear that it hasn't changed yet. You know, it's, it's still no, it's- kind of in that same cycle. My 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 hope on it is is that when my graduate students get to a position uh, where where they're starting their own research programs and working in the north, uh, that they won't have the same hurdles and barriers that I've got now. That they'll be they'll have other challenges, but we would have overcome uh, some of these things at this point, and and we'll be you know working on on other challenges by them. Yeah, that's my hope as well, for sure. And I think, you know, even in some of the the federal and provincial funding programs, you know, I've seen in, in my experience in community energy projects and planning is more recently, I guess in the last year or two, there's been a shift where um, it's not just for a study where you hire an external contractor. It's not just for an infrastructure project where you hire an external EPC contractor. It's finally, you see places in those funding where it's okay, yes, you can hire an external contractor to, to help you with the study, um, but a minimum of, of 50% of that funding needs to go towards hiring a full-time employee in the community that you know capacity is built and there's training opportunities so finally um but it's taken it's taken a lot of time so yes hopefully we get there more in the future as well so with with COVID-19 there have been no scientists from the south actually able to go uh to Nunavut right but because we work with communities and have youth in these communities who live there we've still been able to uh, collect data uh, and work on these projects all year long. Uh, and so right there and there is an illustration of, of the, the sustainable methods that this is uh, for science in the North overall uh, and the potential benefits of, of it. 
So. So Dave, if I, I want to leave our listeners with um, a bit of, you know, where they can find you and read more about your work and, uh, you know, yeah, a- a- anything you'd like to leave people with of where they can hear more and, and uh, do a bit of research into your research. <laughs> <laughs> See, the problem is, is I haven't, I've been too busy to update the webpage and it's still all old uh, helicopter science that I, that I used to do. Um, People can always uh, reach out to me directly at Ryerson University. Uh, I'm on the just just Google Ryerson Geography, and and you can find me uh, find me through there. Uh, I do have a, a website, uh, but it is a, it is very outdated, um, so it needs to be brought back up. But I'm also on on Twitter uh, at uh, at ru uh, underscore polar seal. Uh, that's our my my Twitter handle for our lab group. Uh, Polar Seal is stands for Polar Regions Environment and Spatial Analysis Lab. Uh, that was that was the acronym we ended up putting together. Um, so uh, so you know the, that's the best place to kind of find me to ask any questions and to to learn more and hopefully I'll get that web page updated with some of our uh, more information. Uh, another one of the shout outs I want to make is for the uh, 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 consulting firm that I work with uh, in the north uh, that really helps put all this together is called Arctic Connections. Uh, and their goal is really to bridge uh, scientists with with communities and with with northerners. Uh, and they do a lot of helping to to make those connections. And they're out of uh, if you if you Google Arctic Connections. Uh, in in out of Quebec, uh, you'll you'll find them as well, uh, and they're 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 working. They help us help me as a scientist, uh, you know, find what communities are interested in working uh, with this and and building those bridges. And they're great. They've been a great resource as well. That's awesome. I'll make sure, Dave, um, in the episode notes, in the show notes for this episode, um, to put a link to your Twitter handle as well as Arctic Connection um, and yeah. Polar Seal as well. So if people want to learn more and get more information, they yeah. can do so there. So thank you so much, Dave, for joining okay. me today. Um, I've learned oh, so much and I'm inspired no by your work. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very That's- much for, for giving me an opportunity to, to share. No problem, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Sustainable Stories podcast. This podcast is hosted by myself, Jenna Inglot, as well as Roxanne Wagner from Sage Sustainable Solutions Consulting. For a full list of episodes, as well as more information about Sage, check us out online at sagesustainable.com. And as always, we welcome your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions. Catch you next time.